0: Let's finish 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is definitely a a part of the Bible for believers, those who have given their lives to God, and it's, it's telling us how to please Him, how to live our lives towards each other. There's a lot of how we're supposed to treat one another in this passage. And there are four areas that we'll break it down into, and these are four Actions, therefore, attitudes that I need in my life, if I'm going to be pleasing to God. And as a child of God, the same is true of you. For attitudes, the w- ways of thinking, um, conditions of the heart, but it's it's also actions that we can certainly put in our lives. The first one is care, how we're to care for one another. The second is camaraderie, and I'll go over these again. That togetherness in working for the Lord. They all start with C, so that I can remember. Then we have care, camaraderie. And correction, believe it or not, that's supposed to be part of how we're supposed to act, our attitude, and we're supposed to be receptive towards it. And then last of all, confidence. And that's confidence in each other, that God is, is indeed doing a work in each one of us that we can see. Let's start with verse 12 in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So here's the care that I was speaking of, and it's care for the church of God. The apostle wants the church, doesn't he? He wants the church in Corinth to see that he genuinely cares for their well being, not just their physical well being, but for their eternal well being. The church, that phrase, has two meanings, really. A lot of times when we say the church, we understand that it means all the believers everywhere around the globe. The church is global, right? Everybody who believes in Jesus is Lord. Every person that surrendered their life to him and was following him is a part of the church. But it's also true that when we say the church, it can mean a local church. And so people say, no, no, that's not the church, that's part of the church. When why, why in the book of Revelation does it say, to the church of Laodicea, to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Sardis? That's because this is a church, a fellowship of believers. Yes, a part of the greater body of Christ. So when we say the church, we can mean either the greater or we can mean the local. And when Paul says he wants them to know that he cares for them, I point this out to you because it's easier for us to think about people that we don't know very well, that we don't have very much contact with. Yes, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're far away from us. We don't have to work shoulder, Oh, we don't get to work sometimes, to love the global body of Christ. It's easier to love that person that we're not around very much than it is to love the person in the row behind us or in front of us, the person that we're endeavoring to serve the Lord alongside. Keep in mind As Paul writes, I want you to see that I care for you, he is writing to people that he's lived alongside, that he's served alongside. He was in Corinth for months and months, even years. And he's saying, you still really don't understand that I care for you. The challenge for you and me is to care for each other, the people that are close to you, even the people that are difficult, because they are the church, are they not? It seems like verse 12 is in reference to the man who ran off with his stepmom, and you can read about that back in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. There was a man who stole his father's wife from him, and in that letter, Paul said, this should not be so. This is immoral. It's, It's adultery. It's fornication, and he wrote to the church correcting them, but here he says this. I didn't write that to the man who had sinned, necessarily. And I didn't even write it to the person who was sinned against. But the correction was to the church, not really to the offender. And it wasn't even really to the person who was sinned against. Paul sent this correction to the church because he wanted to, know them, to know, them to know that he loved them, and he was concerned about the way they were responding. This man who was committing adultery, this man who had taken his father's wife, the Corinthian church was not responding in the right way. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, second half of verse 1, a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. So this was the attitude in the Corinthian church. Look how tolerant we are. Look how great we are. That we don't have any problem with this person and what they're doing. And Paul says, you should have been crying over that sin. You should have been broken. You should have been mourning. So he rebuked them and said, this isn't right before God. And he wrote that so that they would understand his care for them. The apostle saw, the apostle knew that if sin was not dealt with, that it would spread like cancer. I remember when they first told us about the cancer that my dad had, they said it was a Just that was the mass of like a walnut. And I was thinking, that's that's so small in comparison to the whole body. Can, Can we just get rid of that walnut and everything will be okay? And of course, that's what doctors try to do, right? To get rid of the cancer. Because what do we know? That the cancer doesn't stay right where it is, but it spreads. Jesus put it this way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't just put a little bit of yeast in that bit of dough and expect it to just stay in one part. So when Paul was writing to the church, he's saying you have this sin against you, and I'm confronting you because you're actually proud of that. You're tolerant. You're puffed up about immorality. That's like our world today, isn't it? They're prideful about their immoral behavior, and Paul says the church shouldn't be that way. The church should go back to what God wants, and he realizes this is going to spread. So his care for the church, his care for the people of God is emphasized here. Caring for them overall, seeing the greater good. Praying for people, for their growth, for their refining. We're going through trials. We're going through tribulations, even temptations, many temptations, that we would care for one another the different churches in different towns in different locations. I've got it on me in my heart to to care for them. He writes in Acts chapter 20, or he said in Acts chapter 20 to some elders, he said, shepherd the flock of God. The, The word there is care for, like a shepherd cares for the sheep, care for the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now you might say, oh yeah, apostles and maybe Preachers, maybe they're supposed to care for the church, but this is what it says in Philippians chapter 2. This is for all of us. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Doesn't it sound like we're to care for one another? Doesn't it sound like we're supposed to nurture each other and even confront each other? That's who we're supposed to be, to each other, maintaining this love, not just looking out for ourselves or for our own. Jesus is the one who said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So that's by the way we treat each other, isn't it? So I hope that when we gather together, the truth is preached. That if anybody comes among us and they don't yet know the Lord, that they would hear the true word of God. At the same time, there can be a good sermon, an on-target sermon, and if we don't treat each other with love, Will they know we're our disciples by our magnificent preaching? They'll hear the gospel through magnificent preaching, but will they know that we're his disciples by our love for one another, by our genuine care for each other? Paul says, I wrote to you because I care for you in the sight of God, and I want you to understand that. Caring for each other is often not really natural to us. Do you know the way you naturally care for your own kids? It's hard to not care about them. You're thinking about them. You you pray and hope that they're doing well. Even when they're not around, there's this natural affection. There's a certain amount of natural affection for each other. But if we're going to love the way the Bible says, if we're going to care the way God's word says, it's got to be supernatural. And we've got to realize, according to this verse 12, That when we fall short, it's not just a personal issue. When we sin, it's it's not just to do with self, it's to do with the whole. It's to do with everybody. To care and to correct and to protect, to come alongside the overall good of the church. Are we praying like this? God, give me a heart for your people. The ones that I'm going to see this evening, this morning, whenever. The ones I struggle to love, the ones I don't struggle to love, the ones who. Are really encouraging to me, the ones who are not very encouraging to me. And you see here that we should appeal with the love of God. Reach out first with God's love. But it's okay, I should say it's even good and scriptural to remind people, I love you. And do you know there's a lot of other people that are looking out for you? And when you make bad decisions, when you fall into sin, when you make that choice, we're all praying that you'll turn to the Lord. Let us come alongside you. Remind each other of your affection and your care for one another. Ask God to give it to you inside that it would become a part of your character more and more. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comforts. This is verse 13. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. Here's the camaraderie. Look at this man Titus, and look at how much he has in common with the Apostle Paul. They have the same joy, the same joy because the rebuke worked repentance in the Corinthian church. Paul and Titus they're they're like-minded in the ministry. They want to see people following Jesus. They're both on this mission of making disciples. They're laboring together. That's why they're comrades in Christ. That's why they're co-laborers. They actually have to be working. And this continues what we started in the last study on Sunday. You receive comfort from others. But notice you don't just receive comfort when you're me-focused. We get like that too much, don't we? We receive com- comfort when we're co-laboring, when we're working alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're running the race together. I won't receive the comfort of camaraderie if I am me-centered. I might get, get a little boost. I might get a little pick-me-up. But the truth is, is when you and I are working together, there's a sense of we're in this for the Lord And that is so necessary in our lives. Paul had that with Titus. He had that with Silas. He had that with with Barnabas. That affectionate care for the people. That word affectionate is given to us so many times in the Bible that these men cared deeply about the people of God. They also shared in the sufferings of Christ, didn't they? Consider how Jesus brought the 12 together. Why did he do that? Well, he was making disciples, right? They're called the 12 disciples the 12 apostles. But he also brought them together for each other, right? He sent them out two by two. He brought them together because he knew that after he died, rose again, and ascended to the Father, they would need one another. So yes, it was about him discipling them, but it was also about them learning to depend upon each other in the Lord, to learn what real trust was, real strength from another who also loves the Lord and is following him. He wanted them to invest in each each other. We can share the mind of Christ, your mind and mine. We can share the heart of Christ, your heart and mine. Now it takes work to clarify, it takes time to not misunderstand each other, but if we're both laboring God will, will knit us together, and that's the wonderful unity in Christ that's spoken of here it's between Paul and Titus, and we should really cherish such brothers and sisters. Verse 15 now. And his affections are greater for you, speaking of Titus' affections for the Corinthians, for those believers, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. So here's the third attitude in action, correction, received and delivered. Your Bible says that when Titus came, they met him with fear and with trembling. Why was that the case? Why would they be shaking? Why would they be afraid when Titus showed up? He's got a strong name. You think he was a scary guy? It's because he was a teacher of truth. It's because they knew that he would speak the truth to them. It wasn't that they were personally afraid of Titus, but they realized he may have correction for us. He may have chastisement for us. So there was a certain element of fear. We're shaking because this visit might have something to do with something we shouldn't be doing. You start reflecting. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 4. Samuel shows up and says, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? If the prophet's coming to your town, what's the first thing you're thinking? Are we in trouble? What are we doing? You start thinking, Are we living the way that we should? Is, is he here because he has a rebuke for us? Is he going to commend us? Now in this case, he says, Yes, I, I, I come in peace. But the people were trembling when the prophet showed up. So with Titus, it wasn't as though they were treating him like, oh, you're holiness, or you're superior to us. They knew that Titus came because Paul sent him in the name of the Lord. He was a messenger, but a messenger of so much more than just himself. So the people trembled when Titus came into town. When you're driving down the road, and there's an officer behind you, and his, his, his or her lights, you know, flip on, are you shaking just a little bit? I still do. Like, I, even if I think I'm going to get pulled over, right away I start thinking, what am I doing wrong? What did I do? What? And even though before you weren't necessarily thinking about it, you, right away you're like, how fast was I going? Did I put my blinker on? Did I stop all the way? You start reflecting, and there's a certain amount of trepidation. That badge is, is the code, is the law, is the judge, is the fine, right? There's something much greater than just that person. So admit it, if you're sensible, there's a certain amount of, what am I doing? Is this a a peaceful visit, officer? Do you just want to ask me if you can purchase my vehicle? Usually when you get pulled over, it's not good news, right? Same thing. I think of this verse. I read it the other day in Isaiah 66. It's, It's the second half of verse two. The Lord is speaking and he says, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The word of God coming in its comforting and correcting fashion and in us ought to be this attitude of, of fear and trembling. This is God's holy word delivered to me. As Titus came, the people were saying, what's his message for us? Our attitude should be, I humbly submit to the word of the Lord. If it's from the Lord, I I receive it. I'm also reminded that earlier in this book, do you remember this? It's back in chapter 2, verse 4, that Paul says when he came, or when he wrote, he did so with much anguish of heart. So this giving of of correction, it's, it's also having an element of anguish even for the person that's delivering it. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. So here it is, this correction among us and between us, not because of our own righteousness, but because we have the standard of God's good word, and it's what we need. I was talking with one of my sisters uh, just about what was going on in their church, and and serving, and the, the health of the church, and their friends and the people they're serving with. And, and it was a bit of great news, even though I, I don't know these people. My sister told me there was this guy, and there is this guy, and he's, he's just a stinker. That's the nice name for the person. The troublemaker, a divider, right? They're stirring up, you know, kind of talking here, talking there, and dissatisfied, not, not really coming forth right with any sort of complaint, but just stirring up trouble. And she said, I was, I was grieved because I could tell there was tension. And, and then it all came to a head. And she said, a guy at our church just said to him, like, I don't want to fight with you. I want to be your friend. Like, I, I, I want to serve God with you. I, I don't want us to be you know, at each other's throats all the time or finding fault in each other. And she said that this stinker, this divider just broke, and he just cried and just said, I'm sorry. Now, that doesn't happen a lot. Usually, like, what's your problem? Uh, But he said, he just broke and said, you're right. I'm just, I'm finding fault over ridiculous things. I'm just trying to, and reaching out to one another and say, "We, we need this camaraderie, and we need this correction. At time, it's received and given in trembling. The last verse of the chapter, we have there, Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you, in everything. Now, this is the confidence portion, the, the fourth attitude in action, that we're supposed to have an confidence in the work that God is doing in each other's lives, in each other's life. Why would Paul express this confidence in this chapter? If you go back to the beginning of the last chapter, he warns them to not run in vain. And now he's saying, I know God is doing something in you. And I know God is changing you. And I know God is, is using you. Look back at 6.1. We then, as workers together with him, also pleaded with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How is this that there can be a warning and then a short time later be this expression of confidence? Clearly, we see that the confidence and the warning can coexist. You can have hope for the continued work in somebody's life, but you can also say, don't get arrogant, don't get cocky, examine yourself. You have a bright future in Christ, but does that mean we don't warn about potential pitfalls? Sometimes as Christians, we get into this peppy self-talk thing that the world does. And that's not who we are. We don't have faith in each other. We have faith in the work that God is doing in each other. And you hear it all the time, like, you got this. Well, actually, I don't know if you've got this, right? Oh, you know, we've got this. Well, without the Lord, I don't know what we've got. I know we're lost. So it's not just a matter of speaking confidence into a person's life and saying, I believe in you. But it's saying, I know the Lord. Paul has confidence that these Corinthian Christians are going to change, that they're going to grow, that they're going to be used. And you might say, that's a false confidence, because there are a lot of people, and they don't change very much. Anybody say amen? No, they did. Do. They don't grow very much. They don't, they're not used very much by God. But I know this, that God is willing, that God is pursuing and that he is calling, and all it takes is for that heart to turn. Yes, being like Jesus is a process, but you get it. I know that you do. There's a moment when your heart turns, and you say, and you mean, God, I'm yours. I don't know how you're going to purify me, and I know I've kicked against you for however long, but I belong to you, and here I am, That turn can happen so quickly, it's supernatural, especially when you've seen that work of God in a person in the past. And I look at these last two chapters in this book, and Paul goes back to what happened before. And he says, yeah, right now, you're struggling. But do you remember when you were receptive? Do you remember when God was working in you? Do you remember when you were growing? And he builds upon that and says, I have confidence in you. Because I know that God started a work in your life. Do you have confidence that God is going to continue to mature people in the church? Now, we sometimes don't even have confidence in ourselves. Like, God, I, maybe this is all I got. Just take me right now. This is about as holy as I can get. Like I, but if we don't have confidence that God is changing people, then why are we serving him? Isn't that what Christianity is? Following Jesus, being transformed into his image, having the confidence and the hope that we know that he is changing people. Sometimes hopeful people in the church get treated like idealists, and you think everything's gonna turn out so great. Well, let me tell you this. God's people are a bunch of train wrecks, and this whole thing about being like Christ is just, we're never gonna get there that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that he is at work in us, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and that he prepared those works before time began, that he set them apart for us to please him with those works. If I don't have faith to believe that God can change people and does change people, then what am I doing serving Well, we'll try to help you, but you're pretty much a lost cause. I mean, we probably wouldn't say that, but are we acting that way? Or is there a confidence? It's not a false confidence. It's in what the Lord has done and what the Lord wants to do. We get focused on the short term sometimes. I do. And I just think, boy, I really perceived that that person was doing so good. And then now I can't even find them. Like, uh, I don't know what they're doing. Lord, they're your work. I want to help if I can. Look at this last verse. It says, I have confidence in you in everything. That means there's nothing that God can't do in your life. That's not just sap. That's the scriptures. And if I can't be a bit of a dreamer when it comes to your spiritual future, then I shouldn't be a pastor, and I shouldn't even be living for the Lord. Like, if I can't see you being used in magnificent ways for the kingdom of God, Then why am I even bothering? Like, if I don't believe that, the word says here that it's true. Holy Spirit inspired truth. Any soul that will surrender to Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is famous. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That he is a capital he, it's the Lord. He started a good work in you, and he'll complete that work until the day of Christ. Just as it is right for me to think to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness. Paul is saying you have tasted of the same grace that I've tasted of, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. That's the truth. So that you could be forgiven of your sins. He paid your pardon. And now, by faith, you can receive him. That's the great grace that the Corinthians had received along with Paul not that we're good people, not that we can pull this off if we band together, but that the Lord has given us his grace. And because we're washed clean by that grace, we have a future and we can live as Christ lived. That's confidence, not skepticism, that we're partakers of the grace. And we have every reason to be hopeful in this work. When you look at the state of the church, it can be pretty discouraging. When you look at people who profess Christ, you say, what, what's happening? The church doesn't seem very separate. It doesn't seem very Christ-like. It doesn't seem that distinct. I take a lot of confidence when the Lord says he knows those who are his. He says, I know those who are mine. And I have to have confidence that he's working in people. And even though I can't always see it, You can't always see it in me that He is doing that work and He'll move us forward. This confidence, this camaraderie, as we consider it, this correction and this care for one another, all of it is against who we are apart from Christ. We have to let Him renew us day by day so that we can have these attitudes in ourselves and these actions in ourselves. This prayer that we're going to sing. Real short, really honest. I pray that you would sing it and it wouldn't just be lip service, but it would be the service of your life. Father God, thank you for giving your son for me. Oh, I think of how I love my kids. And I think of how even me and my measly love, I I, I don't want them hurt. I don't want them suffering. I don't want them separated but you, Lord, gave your Son to shoulder our sins and to suffer just terribly. That's so much love. I pray that we would get outside of ourselves and walk in the Spirit. I pray that we would understand the depths and the challenges of your word. Every time I I open your book, Lord, every time I see what's there, I, I know that you put it there for a reason, and it's, it's for me, it's for us, it's for the church. Thank you for speaking to us with great power, with great authority. Thank you for delivering to us what we've needed all along. And, and just now, as we worship and then fellowship, may we be all that more surrendered to you. May it be complete surrender, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.